Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This is the fifth episode in our American History series, and Gary Gerstel is going to take us through the story of America's attempts to control its borders during the 20th century, and the neglected chapter of Mexican deportation in the 1930s. Why has the southern border been such a problem for the United States? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Gary, the periods that we were talking about in the earlier episodes, the second half of the 19th century into the first decade of the 20th century, are the great periods of immigration into the United States. This is a nation, a modern nation, an industrial nation, founded on immigration primarily from Europe, but not exclusively from Europe. And then, as in all of these stories, there is a backlash in the 1920s. What provokes the backlash? First, it should be said, how extraordinarily welcoming the United States was of immigrants in the 19th century. It's estimated, we don't have exact figures on this, but these are pretty close from 1820 to 1920, 35 million immigrants came into a society that numbered only 75 million in 1900. And that's, those are extraordinary numbers. America's never had the immigrant density of the early 20th century again. It's getting closer now, but it won't it won't reach those levels. And there were two reasons for this one. America was a big country with enormous land mass and great ambitions for economic development, and it was severely short of labor. And even with a very rapid rate of natural increase among the population, it was not enough. And so immigrant labor was absolutely vital for economic development. And then America presented itself as being a different kind of society, uh, epitomized in the poem that's put on the Statue of Liberty in the 18. 90s by Emma Lazarus, the descendant of immigrants living in New York, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. The idea that there was a lamp of liberty welcoming immigrants to America and that for the downtrodden of the world who had had the only thing separating them from opportunity and success, security in life was they had no opportunity in the European continent ruled by monarchs and aristocrats, and here in America, their lives would be different. So it was partly an ideological component and partly a labor imperative. Two things happen in the early 20th century. One is the labor imperative becomes less acute. Industry is being built up. Automation is is moving forward. These are becoming capital-intensive industries, many of them uh, not quite as dependent on raw numbers of unskilled laborers, which many of the Europeans provided. The other dimension was cultural and political. So many immigrants were coming to America that, and they were coming from different religious national backgrounds than those Americans who had gotten to America first, not the indigenous Americans, but the English colonists and the Germans of the 18th and the Irish of the early 19th century. 
Most of these new immigrants were not Protestant. They were Catholic or Christian Orthodox or Jewish, uh, coming to a society that still thought of itself as intensely Protestant and as a preserve for Protestantism in a world dominated by papacy. This was an extraordinary disjuncture. And the feeling became more popular that the people filling up America were at such variance with the image that long-settled Americans had of themselves that the republic would no longer survive if it continued to fill up with these strange peoples. And America not only implements draconian immigration restriction in the 1920s, they, America had been admitting a million a year. It's before World War I. The quota was set then at 150,000, so a decrease of 85%. But the quotas of those who were going to be let in were rigged by the racial thinking of the day, which held that the peoples of Northern and Western and to a certain extent Central Europe were racially superior. These were the English, the Scots, the Irish, Scandinavians, and Germans. That was about it. And insofar as America was going to continue to take immigrants, it would take immigrants only from those racially superior nations. And the rest of the world at that point was pretty much shut out. The feeling was Catholics, Jews, Christian Orthodox could not understand the ways of democracy and the ways of republicanism. And the only way to preserve America was to preserve more of the original stock, meaning population stock, that had given America its republic in the 18th century. On the labor story, does it have a connection with the increased organization of labor as well? I mean, sometimes there is a relationship between unionization and anti-immigrant sentiment in that when labor, relatively speaking, is more abundant, the existing laborers do organize. And one of the things that they do is try and restrict new labor coming in. Was that part of the early 20th century story or does that come later? Yes, uh, it is part of the early 20th century story. Organized labor is organizing in the early 20th century and they have some very notable successes among those thought to be un unorganizable, meaning immigrants, too split apart by their different traditions and different cultural backgrounds, some stunning displays of unity. I would say even more, it's the fear crystallized by the Russian Revolution of 1917 uh, and a fear that not just of organized labor, but organized labor becoming revolutionary. And two of the groups particularly targeted by the legislation of the 1920s were Jews and Italians. The Jews were thought to be carriers of Bolshevism, and the Italians were thought to be the carriers of anarchism. So it's a world that, as a result of World War I, is being convulsed by labor insurgency and by revolution and by the promise or threat, depending on which side you were on, of communist revolution, now communists having successfully established themselves in control of a very large state and then proclaiming themselves dedicated to the prospect of world revolution. Many Americans see communism as the worst threat to America and are determined to raise the walls, the gates against anyone who might bring that into American society from abroad. It's inconceivable to them that anyone within American society would go in that direction without the aid and assistance of, of these immigrants. We're talking here almost exclusively about the kind of immigration that comes over the water from Europe. The United States has two land borders, one with Canada, probably won't get onto that one. But the other one is with Mexico. 
where there's a lot, again, a lot of movement and a lot of immigration, but it's a separate story in some respects in the 1920s to the one that you've been talking about in that the restrictions, you know, people arriving under the auspices of the Statue of Liberty is one thing, but movement across the southern border is something else. The Mexican story and the French-Canadian story, which we won't talk about further today, are, are different. The Mexican story is more important because the numbers involved are so much greater. Most of the world, other than those five or six countries in Western and Northern Europe that I had mentioned, if you were from another part of the world, you couldn't come to the United States after the 1920s. The one exception of, of the 1920s are Mexicans because it's written into the restrictive immigration legislation of the 1920s that the Western Hemisphere is excluded from this restriction. In other words, free movement from the Western Hemisphere into the United States would continue. So the condition that had prevailed earlier before World War I and, and back into the 19th century would continue into the 1920s and 30s. The only group that mattered to the restrictionists of the 1920s were Mexicans because they were the only ones coming in large numbers. And the agricultural corporate interest, which in the 1920s was busy cultivating California and other parts of the West with crops that they were then marketing across uh, the entire United States, they decided that they could not do without Mexican migrant labor and that the exclusion of Mexican migrant labor would be catastrophic for their industry. And so Mexicans and people from all over the Western Hemisphere are excluded from this restrictionist imperative, and they are allowed to continue to come into the United States. And 500,000 Mexicans come into the United States in the 1920s from Mexico, in many cases taking the jobs and doing the work that the excluded Europeans had been doing before that time. And was the assumption that this might be more transient as well? So people who are coming over the waters are not going to go back uh, after six months. But there presumably was quite a lot of flow back and forth, though many, many Mexicans stayed, and we're going to come on to this. But there could at least be the thought that this could be temporary labor rather than permanent settlement. Much of the migration was temporary already, uh, Mexicans coming for growing seasons and then leaving. And also much of this migration as presented to Congress in the 1920s was presented as occurring almost exclusively in rural areas, even though that was not the case. There was significant Mexican migration to places like Chicago and Kansas City and cities like Los Angeles and San Antonio, for example. But this is framed as agricultural labor. And part of what the agricultural corporations told Congress was there were no towns and there were no associations in these rural areas except what the growers built for the migrant workers. So these were unincorporated places. There were therefore no rights. These Mexicans were living in circumstances where they had no access to the Constitution, to rights that Americans had, no recourse to courts. And so the growers told Congress that if these people ever start creating trouble, we will take care of them, meaning we will get rid of them or we will punish them where they are. We will make life unbearable for them in the United States. We will deport them. So you, Congress, don't have to worry about our ability to control this labor stream. And of course, that too then gets mixed up with racial thinking, the idea that Mexicans, even though they were officially denoted as white by uh, U.S. census takers, were regarded in the 
popular imagination as non-white, as peasant, as of a lower intelligence, less capacity, more herd-like, all the more reason because they were seen as slaves of the Catholic Church, and that, that these people could be easily controlled for that reason, and they would not present the problems that brainy Russian communists who were Jewish or Italian anarchists infused with this revolutionary ardor would bring to the United States, even though there had been a socialist revolution in Mexico in the 19-teens, the growers in California were not concerned about this uh, in the 1920s. They, in their condescension, thought that they could control these people, and if they had to deport them, they would. And then we get another backlash, which is in the Great Depression. And again, it's primarily driven by anxieties about labor as the economy tightens massively. There is a feeling that there is now surplus labor, including surplus agricultural labor, so that's what they do. They deport them. Yes, in a very little-known story about the Great Depression, 500,000 Mexicans are deported in the 1930s almost entirely from the South and West, mostly from agricultural areas, but also from urban areas. Uh, much of this is done by state and local governments. It's done more under Herbert Hoover through 1933 when he's still president then under Franklin Roosevelt, but Franklin Roosevelt doesn't do anything to rectify the the situation, even though de deportations ebb somewhat. It's a massive movement, and to most Americans living outside this area, an invisible movement and deportation of people on a massive scale. The numbers deported in the 1930s are thought to match the numbers who came in the 1920s. It has to be seen for what it was, a mass expulsion with very little due process. Sometimes people were given free tickets if they agreed to show up at railroad depots, but no recourse to courts. They were supposed to be all aliens, but some citizens and Mexican-Americans got mixed up because the deporting authorities weren't too discriminating. If you had a brown skin, you could easily be deported. And it's interesting in, in this moment of New Deal triumph, of the regulation of capitalism, of workers on the march, of farmers being celebrated as the backbone of America. It's only farmers with Anglo faces and with the right gene pool who are celebrated as the backbone of America. These agriculturalists with a brown skin are thought of as being un-American and having no place in New Deal iconography and uh, needing no special treatment. And so this movement of deportation proceeds to completion without hardly any protest from those outside the Mexican community in what was, in many other respects, an extraordinary decade of protest on the part of the working class and their supporters. I believe it's one of those miserable human experiences that are beloved of economists because it's also a natural experiment. And the evidence is, because the fear was that Mexican labor was driving down wages, if you take the Mexican labor away, wages will rise, and they didn't. I mean, the, the imperative, and it's a story that feeds through to today. There's often a fear that what immigration produces is it squeezes the wages of the local population, but there's very little evidence for that. And in this case, it does seem that um, the forces at work were much greater than uh, Mexican immigration. The other thing that's true, of course, is in the intervening period, some of these people had settled and had families. So it's not just a question of transient labor, it comes and it goes. It's much more complicated than that. You are now either breaking up families or deporting whole families. Yes, or, yeah. And the, the you're right, the deportation of Mexicans did not solve America's agricultural crisis. 
not in the least. And it's true of almost every migratory stream anywhere. It's a universal, even if it's primarily a, a migrant stream. There are always some people getting off the migrant stream for large or small reasons and staying longer than they intended, first a season, then a few years, and they fall in love uh, maybe with a Mexican-American, then they marry, then they have children. Who are the children? Um, are they to be deported with the parent or are they going to be allowed to stay? You get into situations, and these plague America today as well, again, in a period where all these things are mixed up. If you're going to engage in a program of this sort, it, it calls for finely attuned adjudication and careful attention to the needs of the real individuals involved in this. And in these moments of uh, expulsion, attention to that kind of individuality is just extinguished, and people are deported under the cruelest sorts of circumstances, and their individual cases do not receive the attention that they deserved. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Then if we take the story through the 40s and 50s, there is still a need for Mexican agricultural labor. And after the period of deportation, some Mexicans return. What happens at the regulatory level? Where are we in relation to the rules governing who can and can't come in on the southern border? Well, first you had uh, an exemption of Mexicans from regulatory rules in the 1920s, and that in the 30s was deemed to be unsatisfactory, and hence the mass expulsion. So there's not eagerness to simply open the gates to Mexicans again. And yet, as America inches closer to World War II, there's once again desperate need for Mexican labor. And so Mexican labor are brought in a, in America's first formal guest worker program called the Bracero Program, Bracero being the Spanish name for arms, bringing the arms the United States needs to harvest these vegetables. This becomes... Are those kind of arms, not armaments? Yes, physical arms, um, hands, wrists. Not bringing the guns in. <laughs> bicep, biceps, not, not bringing the guns in, uh, not as they were imagining. And from the time that this is inaugurated in 1942 until it ends in 1964, five million Mexicans are brought in on a regulated guest worker program, the belief being that with this kind of regulation where it's understood from the beginning that this is to be temporary, that Mexican laborers are signing contracts saying they will leave when their contracts are up and will be returned to Mexico, that this will be a much more satisfactory solution for what the United States was still treating as a surplus labor pool that it only wanted in the United States when it desperately needed the labor of Mexicans and then it wanted the ability to get rid of them when that need was over. But if you imagine uh, the seepage that occurs from a, a five million person migratory labor flow, how many people are disobeying their contracts? It was relatively easy to cross the border Illegally, it was easy to stay in the interior. In many instances, you as a Mexican would not be pursued. And the same dynamics we were talking about earlier of Mexicans falling in love with those who are long resident in America, making families, building communities. Uh, we all know how this happens. One thing leads to another, and suddenly what was meant to be a temporary trip uh, or a temporary job 
has turned into a place of residence and a place you call home and children and grandchildren. And this was a situation for perhaps as many as 20% of this migratory stream. And these were people who were technically illegal because they were not obeying the terms of the contract that they had signed. In America, in the prosperous times of the 40s and 50s, this does not become an issue except briefly in the early 50s when there's an operation wetback. Those who crossed illegally were called wetbacks because they were swimming through the Rio Grande River to get across. And there's an effort at mass deportation, but it does not work like uh, the deportation of the, of the 30s because the demand for labor is too high. So that this continues until the mid-60s when in the era of civil rights reform, America engages in a long overdue overhaul of their immigration policy motivated by uh, what I would call good egalitarian principles that favoring certain immigrant groups on the basis of race over other groups was not a good policy for a country called the United States consecrated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And there was an effort in the reform legislation of 1965 to put every country of the world on an equal basis, each with the same quota. The overall quota in terms of people being allowed to enter the United States was double, but it was not eliminated. But every country from this moment forth would have 20,000 places in America per year. A principle of egalitarianism being deployed to make amends for what was now regarded as the racist legislation of the 1920s. And in some respects, this was an admirable reform, but it had very bad and unattended consequences for Mexicans because Mexicans have been used to coming in much larger numbers. Suddenly, for the first time in history, they have a quota of 20,000 imposed upon them. They have the same quota as every country in the world, including the smallest countries like Belize and Liechtenstein. Uh, in some ways, it makes no sense for this big and populous neighbor adjoining to the United States, but this is nevertheless imposed on them. It's not taken seriously by many Mexican migrants in the first 10 years. They continue to cross the border. Nothing is much enforced. And by the mid to late 70s, lo and behold, the U.S. wakes up and it has a serious illegal immigrant problem from Mexico, a problem that's got to swell to numbers that are very high by 1990s, first decade of the 21st century, when 10 to 11 million people in America are undocumented workers. They have no legal papers to be there. And a very large majority of those people are Mexican. Much of this triggered in an unintended way by the well-intentioned reform legislation of 1965. If you look at the political rhetoric today trying to deal with this problem, the headlines are about one way you can do it, which is to try and stop it in future by building a wall or some kind of barrier that makes it much harder to get in. But the deportation story has not gone away. Probably gets less attention, certainly at the current moment, than building the wall. But the primary government tool for dealing with it has, in recent years, been deportation, as in the 1930s. Yes. There have been massive deportations, beginning not with Trump, but with Obama. He tried to conduct those deportations in a somewhat humane way, not splitting up families in a, in a cold-hearted way, as, as and not stripping children from their families, as Trump has done, in ways that make it impossible for these parents ever to find their children again. There are huge camps in the southwest of the United States with tens of thousands of 
immigrants whose status is uncertain. They are waiting for their day in court. They now have a day in court, but that day in court might not come till 2022, 2023. And until that time, until they have their day in court, they are confined to what are, in effect, prison camps. It speaks to the extraordinary failure of America to come to terms with and figure out ways to have a policy uh, regarding immigrants from Mexico and Central America that both serves the purposes of the United States and does justice to the human beings involved in this, recognizing that this is a big border over which millions of people have been traversing for a century and a half. And there have been various schemes floated to to solve this problem, some very good ideas. But uh, in the age of Trump, it has become impossible to deploy any but the most sinister and hard-hearted policies, most of which are either about indefinite detention or ruthless deportation. Uh, Trump, his earliest campaign slogan was Mexicans are rapists, peasants who are destroying the fabric of America, who America can never be great as long as they are present among Americans. Building a wall, an impregnable wall against Mexico was his earliest and one of his most powerful campaign promises. He's not been able to deliver on the wall, but he has increasingly been able to deliver on a hard line and cruel deportation policy, the the hope being in his administration to make the migration experience so unbearable that the stream coming from Mexico will simply cease. We are going to see more of this because this border politics is a rehearsal for the climate politics of the future. There are 60 million refugees in the world now, and 50 years will probably be an additional 100 million refugees, simply those who have literally lost the land under their feet. This is a problem confronting not just the United States, of course, but the EU and Britain and and the rest of the world. And one of the most pressing issues is going to become who is allowed in over our wall or through our wall and who is not. And we have seen the response of the right and Trump to this, which is we will let in our the members of our tribe defined in ethno-racial terms. I think the center and the left has not clearly identified their policy, but this is going to become, this, this local, regional Mexican issue is actually going to become one of the most universal and global issues for the world over the next 50 years. One difference with the 1930s is that no one then got their day in court in the sense that this was deportation on the grounds, we just don't want you anymore it then becomes an argument that is legalized. And as you say, first of all, with deep unintended consequences, the attempt to create a regime with now the consequence that this is the deportation of people who are described as illegally here. Is that difference enough to make a real difference? So we're moving from what was a racial policy, simply we're getting rid of you because you're Mexican, to now we're getting rid of you because you're illegal. Or is that really concealing the deeper similarities. In the period of immigration law reform, part of it was what I spoke about earlier, which was immigration reform in the 1960s. There was also an effort to to reckon with the Holocaust and genocide, first in regard to the Jews of Europe, but then other instances of that as well. 
The U.S. in the 1930s had no refugee policy. It it didn't exist. There was no mechanism for refugees fleeing death. There was no mechanism to give them a hearing. There was just no mechanism in the law to do that. And as a result of the reckoning with the Second World War and then the, the violence in various parts of the world of the 50s and 60s, there's a conviction that emerges in the U.S. and elsewhere to say, we need refugee legislation. We need to hear these people. The form it takes in the U.S. is a right to asylum, which is established in America for the first time in the 1980s. And the reason there are so many people in camps now is that these are people claiming a right to asylum. And if you go to the U.S. border and claim a right to asylum, you have to be admitted until you get your day in court. So this is a great advance. And this explains why, in some respects, Trump has been stymied in terms of what he has wanted to do. But it is not enough to solve the coming crisis of refugees in terms of climate. The system in America is set up to give every individual a hearing. This is, this is not satisfactory. And if Trump politics continue, I suspect that these asylum laws passed in the 1980s will be reversed and there will be pressure to strip aliens of whatever rights have been given to them because in the contest between aliens and citizens in a world where resources have become scarce, what are governments going to favor? They're going to favor the citizens over the aliens. And so I think there's going to be heavy pressure to move to an earlier regime where the human rights of individuals who are refugees are going to be rolled back in favor of the rights of those who are already here. And it's important in that respect to reflect deeply on the advances made in the late 20th century because that reckoning with people as humans rather than as citizens, I regard as a very important advance. And it's going to be of the utmost importance to hang on to that as we move into a world where politics, including mobility and refugee politics, are going to be dominated by climate matters. And if we lose sight of people as as humans in a moment of such scarcity, then the politics at issue from that are going to be deeply troubling. The final episode of American Histories is going to be with Sarah Churchwell, and it tells what's maybe the most remarkable story of all. Where and how did opposition to abortion spring up in America during the 1970s? It's not a story that I knew, and it is really astonishing. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Politics.